couple of years ago, my parents started to clean out my grandfather's cottage. Sitting in one of the rooms was one of those pump organs, one of the pumps that no longer worked, and it was rarely played. And so they decided it needed to go, and they asked me if I wanted it. Truthfully, I had no need for a pump organ. I don't know how to play one. But the wood pieces that it was made out of intrigued me. I figured that used as parts, I could make a few things out of it. So I dismantled it, made a desk and a blanket box and a few other things. Like many people today, I, found, I got great pleasure out of finding something that was useless and no longer had use and making it into something that had a use, out of repurposing an old thing. Well, that got me thinking about some of the weirdest repurposed items I've seen. So here are my top five. Gavin, would you put the first one up there? I know that TVs used to be big, but making TVs into a fish tank was a little bit odd to me especially because I can turn on my flat screen and turn it to a station that will show me fish going back and forth that I don't have to feed. Or how about this one? I'm sure these are chairs for those that are on the go, but I never thought of making my suitcase into a chair. Oh, the next one, Gavin. Now, I know that ordering furniture in the season, there's a lot of wait times, but I've never thought of using tires as chairs. I'm not sure my wife would approve. Or how about this one? I'm sure every musician is horrified that someone would turn a piano into a fountain. But this is probably the most disturbing one for me, the most creepy one. I certainly am not asking my kids for their old dolls. Repurpose, reuse, recycle, it's the mantra of a modern, postmodern world we live in, isn't it? Well, today we come to a passage that we, in which we find out that God gets great pleasure out of repurposing us when we become his followers as well. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ephesians, this time chapter 4, as we continue in our study. As you turn to remember that over the last several weeks, we've been making our way through this book, a book that was written by the Apostle Paul to those in Ephesus and the surrounding area. Paul, he knew how difficult it was to live as a Christian in this area. He'd lived there himself for two to three years. He had experienced it firsthand, and so he wanted to encourage them to stay the course. And as he started writing, he wasted no time in doing so, highlighting for them in the first three chapters, which we've looked at, all that God had done for them. Well, having laid that as a foundation, Paul, at the start of chapter 4, started to answer the question, so what? What practical implications? What should we do? How should we live differently because of what God has done for us? Last time we looked at the first 16 verses of chapter 4, and there learned that a part of living the life worthy of the calling, part of living a life worthy of the salvation that God has given us, is doing life together. That as a result of all God has done, that we are united as a family and need to maintain that unity. In fact, Paul went as far as to say that it's only as we walk in unity that we can mature spiritually and be all that God has made us to be. They're like pieces of a puzzle that God has joined us together so that as each part does its part, we can truly be what God has called us to. Well, in the section we come to today, Paul builds on that, telling us how we must conduct ourselves given all that God has done for us. If you would, you can follow along as I read, starting in verse 12. Nope, starting verse 17. Ephesians chapter 4. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, 
They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that may, may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Here, Paul, he starts by insisting that we no longer live as the Gentiles do. Now, Paul, he's not making a racial statement. Instead, he's using that word Gentile to represent those that don't know Jesus, calling us not to live like unbelievers, like pagans do. Don't miss it. Paul, he isn't recommending a new course of action. He isn't making a suggestion or giving his opinion here. No, instead, by insisting in the Lord, Paul is giving us our marching orders, a mandate we must follow. There, there isn't anything to debate. This isn't like someone insisting that we go first at a door and us refusing. Now, no, that word insist here, it comes from the same Greek word we get the word martyr from. In other words, we are to have a committed pursuit Paul is commanding us to walk a different path, to no longer live as we used to. Well, that leads us to the first thing we want to notice today, that the gospel following Jesus calls us to live differently. The gospel calls you and I to live differently. There was a saying in the ancient world that we still use today, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. In other words, if you're among sophisticated people, act sophisticated. If you're among common earthly people, act earthly and common. If you're among pagans, act like one. The phrase, it serves as a call for us to conform, to, to not stand out. It's a concept that our world has ingrained in us and taught us to follow. But the idea isn't it just in the world, is it? No, even as believers, we often think the right course of action is to do that. And even at times that it's something that we're called to do. I mean, didn't the Apostle Paul say elsewhere that he made himself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible? In 1 Corinthians, he writes, The Jew I became like a Jew to win the Jew. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. Now, sadly, many would think and use that as Paul giving us a reason to conform. But that wasn't really what Paul was getting at. And I said, well, Paul ministered to people in a way that they understood. Well, he tried to remove every cultural barrier to the gospel he possibly could and called you and I to do the same. The idea that Paul wanted us to conform to the ways of the world is simply unfounded. In fact, repeatedly, he calls us to do the opposite. He calls us as he does here when he insists 
that we must no longer live as the pagans do, to live differently. Today, if we're honest, we don't really understand that. We, we don't understand why Paul would do that. After all, we tend not to think of our word, world as all that bad. Sure, sure, we know things could be better. We know that our world is filled with wars and conflict and crime and moral decline. And so we recognize that something is clearly out of kilter in our world, but most of the time we don't see as negative as Paul describes them here. In fact, some have wondered whether what Paul is saying is really true if, if Paul is not just exaggerating. After all, outside of the crazy and extremes of our world, things just don't seem to be the way that Paul tells us they are. We certainly don't tend to see the world as unbelieving world and the way they live as Paul describes it as futile, dark, ignorant, hard-hearted, and given over to uncontrolled passion. I mean, we, we all know some unbelievers, some great unbelievers that that description just doesn't seem to apply to. Those that have a heart for the downtrodden, who volunteer their time at the local food bank or hospital, who help with Habitat for Humanity. Good people, people who pursue mostly the same things we do, who we look an awful lot alike. But here's the thing. This passage, it isn't focused on the individual as much as it is on the dominant lifestyle of our world and how God sees our world. And the way God sees our world, well, it's far from pretty. After all, here Paul says that those who don't know Jesus live in the futility of their thinking. In essence, they are aiming with silly methods at meaningless goals. See, it's just that because the unbeliever doesn't know God and because according to Proverbs 9, the knowledge of God is the start of wisdom, no matter how hard an unbeliever tries, how much effort they put in, they just can't think properly. As one author put it, everything is out of place for them and their disordered and sinful conduct reflects their disordered sinful mind. They can't act right because they don't think right. Now that was a statement that would have shocked those in Ephesus. As those in Ephesus lived in a world that had been fashioned and was a product of the Greek world. And the Greeks had taught that the most noble, wholesome part of a human being was the intellect. In fact, the Greeks had taught that it was the mind, human reason, and philosophy that would save them. And yet, what Paul says here is the exact opposite. That while they thought them, well, their mind was a solution to the problem, that it was actually the chief cause of it. Now, it wasn't that the Greeks couldn't pursue a proper logical analysis, it wasn't that they couldn't form an argument or create paradigms or solve problems or master philosophical concepts, but instead that because most of their thinkers even believed in many gods, believed God was in everything or there was no God at all, they didn't believe in the true God. And because they didn't believe in the true God, they were missing the source of wisdom. Writing of the Roman period that this was written on, that followed and built on the Greek age, Edward Gibbon said that the philosophers regarded all religions as equally false. The common people regarded them all as equally true, and the rulers regarded them as equally useful. They didn't, know, they didn't know God. And because of it, at some point, all their reasoning, and especially their moral conclusions, were distorted. You see, it's just that the truth, it's not just a set of propositions. Truth has nail-printed feet a pierced side and scarred hands. Jesus is the truth. He claimed to be the truth, the embodiment of truth, the source of all truth, the determiner of truth. And so to have a grasp on the truth, if we're to have that, to, to be wise, it only makes sense that we must know him. Sure, without him, people can know some things. We can have some knowledge. But without him, our truth is nothing but baseless. It lacks a foundation. And our wisdom is at best haphazard 
and unfounded. In fact, so much so that Paul goes on to tell us that their understanding was darkened, is darkened. In the ancient world, light was this universal symbol for understanding. The Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was the light of man. So without Jesus, unbelievers are left with no light to give them life. They are intellectually blacked out because they are separated from the source of light and life, leaving their world not only dark but futile without ultimate purpose and meaning. Let me give you just one example of that. Among other things, to reject God is to conclude that life itself, our very existence, is just an accident. Well, have you ever thought about what that means? How futile life would be if that is true? And how futile one's thinking that way would be? One author put it this way. The proponents of atheistic evolution, of whom there are many in our day, argue that everything exists, including ourselves, has come about entirely by chance. That there's been no guiding plan or mind, it just happened. That one day, for no real reason, certain inorganic compounds like hydrogen and water and ammonia and carbon dioxide, which were existing for no real reason and had no beginning, united to form bioorganic compounds like amino acids for no apparent reason. These bioorganics united to form biopolymers, which are the large molecules such as proteins, and they did so by chance. And these became the first living cells like algae, all for no reason. And from this point, life just progressed. He then writes this, this is utter absurdity. Absurdity. Chance is no thing. It can form nothing. So if the choice is between a plan and an accident, there is no real choice. There must be a plan. And in order for there to be a plan, there must be a planner. And yet the world does not see the absurdity of it. But even worse than that, if there is no plan and everything is a product of mere chance, then nothing has meaning. The world is meaningless. History is meaningless. You and I are meaningless. Everything we do is an accident. Whether we die or live, whether we succeed or fail, it's irrelevant. It's all futile. It's meaningless. And if we believe that, our thinking and actions reflect it. So it only makes sense that Paul would label their thinking as futile, as missing true purpose and meaning. In fact, Paul, he goes on to say, because they've rejected God, because of their ignorance, their hearts have become hardened. Paul said something similar in his letter to the Romans where he wrote this, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God, nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Paul states the world has rejected the truth. It has suppressed it, hid from it, denied it. No doubt knowing that if they were to recognize the truth, they would have to change their thinking. And so they refused to believe and harden their hearts. That word harden that Paul uses here, it's a word that was used medically. It, it meant to petrify. Applied to joints, it referred to stiffening by things like arthritis. If, if applied to a fracture, it referred to the way that a bone would piece itself and heal itself back together. When applied to the eye, it meant blindness. Paul is saying, in time they become callous towards God by their continual refusal of him. But it's not only that. 
No, what's more, by failing to look to God to satisfy, they turn to other things, giving themselves over to more and more sensuality and anything that might give them the illusion of satisfaction. Some of us have sat with dying loved ones who urge us to squeeze their hand. They long for the sensation of human touch as the world's experience for them is ending. Then when the heart begins to fail and the sensations that reach the brain dull, their desire for touch becomes more intense and they urge us to, to hold harder. Brian Chapel tells of sitting with a family of a man who is dying because of a tear in his heart. Hold my hand, the man said, harder. And then when the man could no longer feel them holding his hand, he said, hold me. Well, that is the image the apostle wants in our mind. Sensuality outside the path of God, while it promises to satisfy, it only deadens the senses and leaves us searching for more. We end up in this downward spiral of depravity, searching for more. In the book of Romans, Paul put it this way, God gave them over to sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. I don't know about you, but that sounds an awful lot like the world we live in to me. People looking to other things to satisfy and becoming increasingly perverse as they do so. It's just that they never seem to have enough. So if it's money they're looking to, they strive for more and more of it. If it's pleasure, they seek it. If it is sensuality, they become obsessed with it. It's why pornography is rampant, why there are tens of thousands of women sadly being trafficked in her province. It's never enough. It never satisfies. And so they're always left wanting more. And yet, like quicksand, they only sink deeper and deeper and seem to become more perverse. It's why Paul calls their thinking futile, their understanding darkened, ignorant, and their heart hardened. There's a story told how on July 30th, 1945, the heavy cruiser USS Indianapolis was headed home across the Pacific. It just delivered enriched uranium that would be used to end the war. Well, as they were underway, a Japanese torpedo struck the ship and ended their journey. In the first 12 minutes after the attack, 300 men were killed. More than 900 men, some wounded, ended up in the salt water without fresh water to drink or shelter from the sun or protection from the sharks. Of the 900 men, only 316 would survive the four days and five nights in the ocean. The chief medical officer, Captain Lewis Haynes, was one of the survivors, and he reported this. When the, hot, when the hot sun came out and we were in the, its crystal clear water, you were so thirsty you couldn't believe it wasn't good enough to drink. I had a hard time convincing the men that they shouldn't drink. The real young ones, they would drink the salt water and they would go fast. I can remember striking men who were drinking water to stop them. They would get dehydrated, then become very maniacal. It's a picture of what Paul is saying here. The way of the world, it's so enticing. It looks so enticing like the water of the ocean, like salt water when you're thirsty. It looks clear and innocent. It looks like it will satisfy. But once we drink it, it not only doesn't satisfy, but it creates a thirst in us for more and more. It's like poisoning, deadening our senses to what is good and drawing us deeper in. Dear friends, you and I, we need to start to see the world as God sees it. As a dreadful place, a place that is without the knowledge the only knowledge that ultimately matters, the knowledge of him. Because it's only when we do that that we will truly understand why he would call us to live differently than it. Well, assuming Paul's description is correct here, it isn't shocking, is it, that Paul would insist that we no longer live in the same manner, that he'd want us to abandon that old way of life. After all, if, 
we as Christians find ourselves in a world hardened against God, hardened against the one we follow and serve, we are just not on the same team as them. Nor do we have the same goals or dreams or loyalties as them, or, or at least we shouldn't. But not only that, the more we live as if we do, the more we live as if we don't change our ways and live as the way the world does, Paul knew the more we did that, the more we'd also harden our hearts, darken our minds, and lessen our sensitivity to God. So Paul, here, he reminds those in Ephesus and you and I today that while you used to be a part of that world, if you've come to know him, you no longer are. And so you should stop living like you are. Sadly, despite that, we all know Christians who do so anyways, allowing themselves to be drawn into the same desires and pursue the same things as everyone else. Just that our minds, they have been cross-wired and pre-programmed by our world since we were born. Well, Paul is telling us to no longer follow those things. He's warning us not to. He's calling us to live differently, to value different things, to look for joy in different things, and to seek different things. Well, unless you think that isn't possible, that Paul's calling us to a task we can't possibly achieve, Paul here goes on to tell us that we can do that simply because something fundamentally has changed in us. A switch has been flipped, which is the second thing we want to notice. That the gospel, it provides us the power to live differently. The gospel provides us the power to live differently. Look at verses 20 through 22. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your mind and to put on the new self, being created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says that when we became believers, we learned Christ. Now, Paul didn't mean we learned historical facts about Christ, that we learned the history, but rather we gained a personal knowledge of him. Jesus would put it this way when he prayed to God the Father in the book of John. He said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It's a learning of him, a, a relationship with him that changes us at our deepest possible level. It happens when, as Paul said, you heard him. Now, I know the NIV version I just read said you heard of him, but there is no of in the Greek. Instead, it reads, when you heard him. Perhaps it was through his word that you heard him, or through one of his people that you heard him, but you heard him, and having come to him, were taught in him, in connection with him. Well, it's because of that relationship, because you know Jesus, that you have been changed. Back when I completed my first year of my master's, a church I was at hired me as a youth pastor. Instantly, the, the title pastor was attached to my name. And because of that title, people just assumed that I would know the answer to all kinds of things. My first youth event, I had a few teens that showed up that I didn't know, and I didn't know any of the teens, but some that I didn't think had been there before, and found out that they were dealing drugs during the youth event. So I went to my youth leaders and asked what they would do, would do about that, and some of them had been working with youth for decades, but they assumed that I would know what to do because I was the youth pastor. I didn't really know, so I decided to throw out my message and preach the gospel to them, and then called one of the men of the church who was a police officer to show up in uniform. The teens didn't come back, but at least they heard the gospel. A week later, one of my kids called after youth group, just a few minutes after they left. It seems that after they left the church, she got into some debate with her dad in the car, and her dad had turned around and slapped her. And now they were at the side of the road. I was supposed to know what to do because I was the pastor. 
But truthfully, I was the same inexperienced, partially trained kid I was before they hired me. Other than my title, nothing had changed. It's the same sort of thing that often happens when you become a parent for the first time, isn't it? I mean, instantly you have a title. You're a mom or a dad. But you're not more qualified than you were days before. Instead, if you were like me, you kind of floundered around trying to figure out how to parent, how to, how to get this baby to stop crying. Truthfully, it's amazing to me that God entrusts us at all with babies. I would have mandated a course or something. Still, you put in effort, you worked at it, you tried. Well, here we find that your title has changed. Your citizenship is different. And because of that, your actions need to be different. Paul, he compares it to taking off and putting on a new set of clothes. It's a picture Paul liked to use. In fact, he used it often. Telling the Colossians, you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. The Romans to discard the deeds of darkness and to put on the armor of light. And the Galatians to put on Christ like a garment. Each time trying to paint a picture of the change that occurs in our life when we come to know Jesus. It was an image that the early church picked up on. So much so that some early traditions even gave baptized people new clothes to wear after baptism. This past week I was reading the story, a story by Tony Merida. He's a commentator that I, I use. He wrote about how after spending 35 days in the Ukraine in an effort to adopt their four children, he and his wife were finally allowed to go home with them. All the legal work was done, he, he wrote. We were eager to show them love in many ways, including cleaning them up and giving them some new clothes. They'd been wearing the same smelly clothes and same worn-out shoes every day since we arrived. Once we had permission to leave, we brought them some brand-new outfits. Kimberly, his wife, took the older two children, and I took the younger two. I told the girls via translator, girls, we're going home. Little Victoria asked, forever? I said, yes, forever. Their faces lit up as I gave them their denim dresses, socks, shirts, and more. They went to the bathroom and changed every garment. In their orphanage, upon leaving, the children had to leave behind every piece of clothing they had been wearing. What a picture of the gospel, he writes. They put off their old orphanage garments and put on the new clothes from their adoptive parents. New clothes, new identity, new home, new security, and a new way to live. Here Paul says you've been given new clothes, a new, new uniform that has new responsibilities that go with it. So let's be honest, if that is all it was, if it was just putting on a new pair of clothes, and that's all that had changed, well, we could try harder. Most of us, all of us, would be destined to fail, wouldn't we? It'd just be too much. Well, fortunately for us, it's not just that we need to try harder or be more disciplined, although those things will definitely help. No, something more fundamental has happened. Something has changed. If you're a believer, the Bible tells us that you have been made new. You've gone from death to life, been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, freed from the cage of sin you were in, and empowered to live differently. You see, what Paul is asking for, you can't simply will yourself to. You just don't have it in you unless Christ is in you and has changed you. John Stott writes, it is because we've already put off our old nature in that decisive act of repentance called conversion when we became a believer that you can logically be commanded to put away all these practices which belong to the old rejected life. In other words, the gospel doesn't just, just call us to live differently, but it empowers, it enables us to do so as we've been given a new nature, a nature that can choose to do what is right with the right motives. Like a butterfly after the cocoon, what we are now, we weren't before. Over in 2 Corinthians, it reads this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
John 1 reads, Yet to all who received him, Jesus, to all who received Jesus, to those who believe in him, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or husband's will, but born of God. And Jesus himself compared true faith to being born again spiritually. Well, Paul is saying, because God has given you a new nature, you need to live it out. Lindsay Clegg, he was a businessman in London. He told a story about selling a warehouse he had. The building had been empty for months and it needed repairs. Vandals had damaged the floor. They'd smashed the windows. They'd strewn trash around the interior. So as he showed that prospective property to a prospective buyer, he said that he would replace the windows, have it cleaned up, make sure there was no structural damage. Forget about the repairs, the buyer said. When I buy this place, I'm going to build something completely different. I don't want the building. I want the site. Well, compared with the renovations God has in mind, Our efforts, apart from him, to approve our own lives are as trivial as sweeping a warehouse slated for the wrecking ball. When we became God, the old life is over. He makes all things new. All he wants is a site and permission to build. That doesn't mean, it doesn't mean because we've been made new that we don't have anything to do. No, while we have been made new, we still have grown up in the world. Its way of thinking has been ingrained in us, and so we continually need to be reminded to act as we have now been made. Think of it this way. In a particular nation, there were two competing factions fighting for control. Eventually, with the help of an army, one faction won the war and assumed control of the nation's government. But the losing side didn't stop fighting. They simply changed their tactics to guerrilla warfare and continued to fight. So it is with us. Satan has been defeated, the reign of sin overthrown, but our sinful nature resorts to a sort of guerrilla warfare to lead us into sin. Though it's dead, the residue of it remains, it persists. The patterns of thought we used to have that were ingrained in us, our actions have left deep ruts in our lives that are easy to fall back into. Like a kid who's been adopted and given new status and made new, the patterns of our former family that we we're used to, are so easy to go back to. Like someone who's moved into a mansion out of poverty, they still act at times like they were in, the, in poverty. And so Paul tells us that while we've been put on the new, we must continually live it out. We must be reminded of it, continually live in light of our new identity. You and I aren't to be like a butterfly that still crawls around like a caterpillar. We are meant to fly. Dear friends, if you know Jesus, God has given you a new heart new desires, a new mind, and the power to live that out, a power that enables you to live differently. Not wanting to leave it vague, Paul then goes on to give us a couple concrete, practical examples of how that plays out, which is the last thing we want to notice this morning, that gospel living results in living differently, that gospel, the gospel living out what we believe results in living differently. And Paul's not trying to give an exhaustive lift here. Instead, he's just trying to give us some examples of the kind of behavior that should characterize us and set us apart as different than the world. And he starts out by telling us that we should speak the truth to each other. Uh, That makes sense. I mean, if Jesus is the truth and we follow him, we should be people of the truth. But while that sounds easy, let's face it, it's far from it. After all, today we're tempted to lie or bend the truth at almost every turn. We're tempted to tell lies when we're writing expense reports or submitting tax returns or engaging in business dealings or facing fines or facing rent or curfew or traffic citations or even when our parents ask us questions. The opportunity to shade or hide the truth, to avoid consequence or get ahead are constantly a challenge to us. What's more, the world seems to encourage and endorse partial truth-telling and deception. And yet, we are to no longer live as unbelievers do, 
So Paul calls us to be people of the truth. Something that Paul tells us is especially needed when it comes to how we deal with one another because we are all members of the same body as believers. After all, what good could one part of the body lying to the other result in? I mean, if your eyes were to lie to your feet about the danger it sees, that could be disastrous. Well, in the same way, falsehood stifles unity and hurts the body to the point that when trust disappears, it causes the work of the body to come to a screeching halt. Well, having told us to exchange falsehood for truth, Paul goes on to give us another example of how we'd be different, telling us that in our anger, we must not sin. Paul doesn't say don't get angry, but rather when you're angry, don't sin. There are times when you need to be angry. angry. King David of the Old Testament wrote, Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law, God. When innocents suffer, when atrocious, the atrocities prevail, when evil people do evil things, we should be angered. But even in that anger, Paul tells us we're not to sin. We're not to throw a fit or seek revenge. And when dealing with someone else, we're not to let the sun go down on our anger. We're not to dwell on it. Now, I don't know how often I've come across that verse, don't let the sun go down in your anger. And seeing that people have tried to apply it literally, to force a resolution to their conflict before they go to bed. But I doubt Paul was being literal. Instead, I think he's saying, don't let it fester. I mean, Paul doesn't say, don't, doesn't say settle your dispute. He says, settle your rage, your indignation. Settle your anger. Let it go. Replace it with a longing for resolution or a desire to see mercy or love for your neighbor. But let it go. He doesn't want anger to have residence within us. Because if we do, if we allow it in us, the enemy will use it as a Trojan horse to get to us. And the anger will act like an acid that destroys the container that holds it. So while the world applauds revenge, celebrates it in movies and TV, and applauds seeking vengeance, while bitterness and anger are everywhere, and people regularly sin in their anger saying things that should never be said and doing things that should never be done, you and I are to be different. Well, the anger and lying, Paul tells us, he adds on to that list telling us that we must not steal. Now, historians tell us that stealing was quite typical in that era. So in all likelihood, stealing was just part of the way of their world. Well, sadly, that hasn't changed much. I think we've gotten a little bit more deceptive in how we steal. But from bootleg movies to pirate software, pirated software and music to corporate scandals, we see it everywhere. We see it because we see employers who budget for employee theft. We see it when the government taxes us on the assumption that people will hide their resources. A paper given to the American Psychological Association Symposium on employee theft presented a breakdown of $8 billion of inventory shortages that happen in department and chain stores every year. What they found is that the losses, 10% of the losses were due to clerical error, 30% of the losses were to shoplifting, and 60%, $16 million a day was lost by theft by employees. People, they lie to landlords, they lie to employers, they to avoid financial responsibilities. They regularly do personal work on company time. They pilfer. But here Paul says we are to be different. We aren't to be involved in any kind of theft, even when no one else will know. That while that might have been a part of our lives before becoming Christians, and while everyone in our world may be doing it, Paul's reminding us that there's no place for in our lives now. That we ought to work. And work not just to get ahead or buy what we want, but so that we have something to share with those in need. Paul then goes on to say this new way of living should also affect the way we speak and calls us to get rid of foul talk. That, that word foul or corrupting, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to rotten fish or fruit. 
Corrupt talk does not nourish you. It makes you sick. And so we're to do away with it. We're not to use abusive language or vulgar references and, or unkind words or gossip and slander, knowing that not only we do so, when we do so, are we simply slipping back into the patterns of the world, our dead nature, but Paul says we're grieving the Spirit of God within us, the same Spirit God gave us. So instead of doing that, we're to build each other up with our words. And then Paul closes examples by telling us that resentful attitudes and bitterness and outbursts and public shouting and hostility are to be replaced with kindness and forgiveness. That in essence, in all of this, we should reflect our Savior, the one who's made us in his image and is conforming us to his nature. And so just as God has shown us kindness and forgiven us, we too should forgive one another. That we should be those that are kind and compassionate, those that don't brawl or fight, but rather forgive. Well, here in Ephesians 4, Paul insists that you and I as believers, we must no longer continue to live as unbelievers do. And because we've entered into a relationship with Jesus, because he has made us new, we can and should live differently. That we must live out the new life that he's given us. Something that's shown in the truth we tell, the integrity we have, and the compassion and forgiveness we show. I don't know where you're at today, but perhaps you're here and you don't know Jesus. If so, my prayer for you is that God would open your eyes, bring light to your understanding so that you might see the world the way God sees it, so you could see that there's nothing that will satisfy apart from Him, and no meaning to be found apart from Him. And seeing that, that you would choose to put off your old self and be given a new self, a new set of clothing, choose to be made new by Him. So maybe that isn't you today. Now instead, like probably most here, you would call yourself a believer. And yet if you're honest, your life has never really changed. While you've been made new, you've been given new clothes, you keep trying to put your old clothes over them and certainly haven't gotten rid of them. If so, don't miss here that Paul is insisting that we not live that way. He's warning us not to. Because not only if we do so, we'll become callous to God. Not only will our understanding be darkened and our witness destroyed, but we will grieve the spirit he has given us. So if that is you today, why not make a line in the sand and start, by, and, start, and start living out that new life God has given you. Be the new creation he's made you into and choose to put off the things of the world and live differently. So perhaps as I may describe these two types of people, you conclude that doesn't apply to you. Instead, you are doing well in this. You, you are living differently. If so, I still believe that God would use this passage in your life to call you to examine yourself, to ask which areas of your life you still need to grow in. So if that is you, why not do that today as we close? Why not ask God to show you what you need to give to him and work on? Ask him if you need to put off anger or lying or stealing or bitterness or foul talk or Whatever else, ask him to reveal what ways you need to start living differently and then commit to start doing so. Will you pray with me? Father, I thank you that not only have you called us to live differently, but you haven't left us to our own will to do so. You have made us new and empowered us to do so. Father, forgive us when we don't even try. When we just follow the patterns of the ways of the world around us and don't seek to follow the example that your son set for us, help us to be people who are known for living differently. In Jesus' name, amen.